My name is Robert Mladenich, retired NYPD detective, co-author of Case Files of the NYPD, and you are listening to the Mike Sappho Podcast. Hi, this is Phil Messing. I am a retired uh, newspaper reporter, spent a lot of years at the New York Post. We are listening to the Mike Sappho Podcast, and we're uh, talking about Case Files of the NYPD. How you doing? This is uh, Lieutenant Bernie Whalen with the NYPD. You're listening to the Mike Sappho Podcast, and we just had the pleasure of talking about our book, Case Files of the NYPD. Ready to roll? I guess so. Lieutenant, cheers. Finally. This has been a while we've been trying to set this up. Yeah, we have, it's been been a while, and uh, I did see you with Jackie Ma- uh, Jackie Martley. Yes, that yes, was a yes. Show. You were supposed to hang out with him. Did you ever meet up with him? I did. Uh, while we were in touch, he claimed that he was uh, related to Teddy Roosevelt, his family, and I had written about that in the uh, another book I wrote, NYP's First 50 Years, and I put him in touch with uh, some people who really knew about the Roosevelts. But when push came to shove, uh, Jackie, I don't think, wanted to really find out if it was real or not. He liked the fantasy maybe better. Yeah, that's the last time you came because I called you up around a year and a half ago yeah. to see if I was even allowed to do a podcast. Right. And then we stayed friends. We've been trying to do this for an, yeah, maybe 18 months. Sure. So introduce your team to me. All right. So I'm Bernie Whalen. I'm a lieutenant in the NYPD. And my co-authors is Phil Messing who is a, uh, was a longtime New York Post crime reporter, and Bob Mladenich, a retired detective who uh, now works for the Sergeant's Benevolent Association as their communication director. I thought cops and we reporters weren't allowed to be friends. Yeah, sometimes. sometimes. We're going to make an exception with this one? Yeah. Uh, we need someone uh, to bring in some heavy hitters. Yeah. Okay, so you book Case Files of the NYPD, more than 175 years of solved and unsolved crimes. Who put this together? Actually, I got called by the a publisher, of Black Dog Leventhal, about writing a crime book. And uh, we talked about it, and I was uh, very interested in the project. But they wanted it very fast. And I said, I could do it, but I'm going to need to bring on some guys. I reached out to Bob, who I knew uh, from uh, the SBA, and uh, he'd helped me actually publicize another book I had in YPD's first 50 years. And also Phil, who got me some publicity from the Post, he did a nice article for me. And I said, hey, you got to take care of guys that take care of you. Was that any bickering, like the Beatles, any fighting yeah, doing the book? It no? Very, it was really uneventful in that regard. It was like we, we divided it up um, chronologically, where Bernie did the uh, um, first third of the stories roughly, and uh, Bob did the middle third, and because I covered a lot of these stories in real time, I did the last third. And it wasn't like ironclad. Like, there was a couple of stories that I liked from beforehand that I did, and vice versa. We all kind of had, like, pet stories that we kind of did in addition to what was our basically our focus area. And obviously, Bernie, you did the first 30 because that was your bread and butter from writing the first right, book. First, uh, right. And what made you take the second half of the book? <clears throat> I've always been a tremendous fan of... Um, of history, not just police history, but all types of history. And I love the era from like the 1940s through the, 19, the late 1960s and 70s. So when I saw I had the opportunity to get that era, right, I jumped on it. And I, um, I'm, um, I love tabloid journalism. So I did a lot of research with old tabloid journalism, black and white photos. I was really in my milieu, you know, writing this book. I just, I love the research as much as I love writing the book. So my next question was, it was a fun book to write? Definitely. It was one of the great experiences in my life, I can tell you that. It sounds hackneyed, you know what I mean? It sounds like I didn't have much of a life to, write, to just enjoy a book as much as I did. But it was really a, uh, you know, you say a labor of love. It was just like, uh, it was hard work, but it was a lot of fun. See, I'm a big reader, so I'm always fascinated when two or three people write a book together. 
did you just handle your own things and you just like at the end put everything together or were you guys well, in an and out process i mean you know we kind of you know I, I i sort of deferred to to bernie you know just for the sake of somebody's got to like be the uh the point guard in, the, and in any effort like this so somebody's got to take the ball down the court and uh bernie kind of you know kind of Having out the um, the rough edges on some of the stories that I submitted, you know, I'm assuming that uh, it wasn't uh, too arduous, but it was, uh, you know, we, we we basically wrote what we wanted to write, you know. It's 175 years of crimes. What made you choose the specific crimes itself? That was that was actually one of the fun processes. We sat down and had a brainstorming session, and we just started throwing out, you know, famous cases from the past, you know, almost two centuries, and. Um, there were a lot that we um, we agreed on right away. There's one in here that I had to push for a little bit. What was uh, your push? My push was Gig Young. He was an Academy Award-winning actor who uh, killed his fifth or sixth wife and then killed himself. And the reason why I pushed for that one is because that case was never like officially solved. They came up with this theory that he had this um, this uh, psychiatrist that was known for mind control. So the detect one of the detectives that worked on the case actually told me we really didn't know if that was accurate that that he kind of compelled this guy to commit suicide, but we had to have a clearance. We had to come up with something, and I just wanted to show the frustration that detectives can deal with very often and with who, cases. Whose idea was it? Because the book and we'll plug it and everything. It's a big book. It's like the essential coffee table book. Whose idea was it to do it this way? Because it could have been done either a regular form where a few pages on each crime. Or let's do a few pages and end these awesome pictures. Whose idea was it to like, let's bring a visual aspect to this book? That was uh, the publisher. Uh, but we, uh, part of the crimes we picked was to make sure we had photographs available. It didn't do us <laughs> any good to write a terrific story uh, and then there would be no photograph to illustrate it. And for me, I do a lot at the beginning, I'm talking about crimes in 1803. So we had to find uh, illustrations back there, wood carvings or whatever. Uh, to illustrate those crimes. There were a few that uh, I had written that didn't make it just because they didn't have enough uh, compelling illustrations. What's one, we'll go around, one crime you really wanted in there? I know you pushed for that one. Was there certain crimes or events that you wanted in there that just didn't make it? Um, I think that there's always a, um, a vetting process. You know, there's a couple of crimes that we could have put in here that would have been as suitable as any of the others that didn't make it. You know, we had like uh, the Rakowitz case. Yeah, the cannibal. Yeah, the Rakowitz case, the guy in the village who was um, uh, supposedly um, served up his uh, girlfriend uh, as a sort of like um, stew to the people mm -hmm. in the area. I mean, it was had all the elements of a, a really uh, ghastly um, tabloid news story. But, uh, you know, there's, there's always going to be stuff left on the uh, cutting room floor, floor, as they say. And I'm assuming a New York Post reporter and two uh, police bosses, you had no problems getting the pictures? Actually, the publisher hired a, a, a woman that worked for the City of New York Museum, right? And uh, sat down with her a couple times and went through and taught, told her what we needed. And she was able to get them, and, and she got some terrific pictures. And the way they packaged the book with the illustrations, uh, it really brings each story to life. I, I've seen a lot of crime books, and not to be uh, blowing our own horn, but this was one of the, I think one of the most interesting to pick up and look at. I just love that so many crimes that everyone knows about. There was the Son of Sam case, and sometimes when you read it, I read it a year ago, when I contacted you to right. come on my show a year ago to do it. You sent it to me on the train today. I'm you know I'm skimming through it. You don't realize how 
New York-centric we are, we, I think we take it for granted. Because there's cases in here that change, like the Eaton Pats case. Right. That changed, like, missing, uh, missing children's case. The Son of Sam, everyone knows about. Obviously, gaudy stuff. We're so like, oh, it happened in New York City. Yet these crimes are just so massive. Yeah, we did this story. One of the stories we had in the last part of the book was this uh, story of Willie Boskett, mm -hmm. who was a uh, sort of a depraved kid who um, he was like a thrill killer. And his father was a, uh, I think, a member of uh, uh, Manson, but his father was a murderer too. So his father's in prison, he's in prison, and he like basically was, I think, about 14 when he decided to kill kids, kill people on the subway. He went on this uh, hellacious crime spree where he killed several people in a matter of a couple of days. And when they finally caught up to him, his uh, ferocity and his uh, feral nature was so astounding to the body politic that they changed the laws in New York State. But what became interesting about it is that it became the template for changing juvenile justice throughout the country. Every state in the country almost followed New York's lead and criminalized behavior that up until that time, it was always the notion that a child couldn't be held accountable for his actions because he was a child. That went out the window with Willie Boskett. That's wild. And you guys wrote about Bernie Getz. Yeah. And I was just on the subway, and I was just, you know, just skimming through it. And I'm like, he's in a Billy Joel song. Everyone knows the Bernie Getz situation. And now covering it. Do you remember covering these cases? I was up there when he surrendered. I went to New Hampshire when I was sent by my paper. And it's like I went up there, and I, uh, I can remember it like it was yesterday. And we had these, um, you know, clips that the library ran, you know, basically be uh, what you call B copy. You know, stuff that you, if you're filing a story, you could put in what happened previously. And I made a, a thing, and I met a, I met a uh, television reporter, sweet little girl, like, you know, look from the middle of uh, Concord, New Hampshire, whatever it is. She said, could I borrow that? I said, sure, but I need it back. Mm -hmm. She walked off with it. <laughs> you never got it back. <laughs> That's what happens when you uh, follow a pretty girl. She's yeah. going to take it from you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it shows, shows to you that uh, all the thieves are not in New York City. <laughs> and, <laughs> and did you guys work on any of the cases in the books, or were you at any of the scenes of any of the cases in the book? Not you. I know you're not well, that old of that uh, 1800 I was case. At, uh, I worked in the 17th Precinct. Uh, Castellano? Yeah, Paul Castellano was yeah. killed I did the, at I, I did the rewrite on that and, and that, did real time. Right. The and, story uh, one of the things, like the, the book has a lot of things in it that people don't really know about that crime. In particular, that night, I was at the 17th Precinct. That was our precinct Christmas party. So none of the regular cops that would really <laughs> know the precinct were on duty that night. Wow. It was the Manhattan South Task Force covering. So whether they knew that or not, but... The internal affairs people questioned the club president who threw the party to ask him why he picked that night to wow. throw the party. So there was a lot of uh, I remember, little interesting I writing things it on that, uh, uh, about that type of uh, little sidebars, I guess, that, that add more interest to the story than just the mobster getting killed. And did you have any personal... I, I was peripherally involved with the uh, Palm Sunday massacre, and um, I, I never worked in Queens. But I was involved with the arrest of the, um, the perp's name was Christopher Thomas. And he escaped from the, the actual massacre. And he was arrested about a week or two later in the 4-2 precinct where I was working back in 1984. He was arrested for sexually assaulting his mother. So oh, a yeah. team of us, you know, went and, and uh, he didn't put up any resistance. We had no idea he was wanted. We took him down to Central Booking. And this is before the, all the modern computers that we have today. And within hours of being in Brown Central Booking, this, this team of uh, heavy hitters came in from Brooklyn and whisked them off in shackles. During these cases like that, 
like Bernie Getz, like Paul Castellanos, did you understand the significance of the case while you're there? Or well, you, just- you know, it's sort of like a thing that, um, you know, um, you get like some people get like a, a, a need at Hearst when it's about to rain. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing a big case, you immediately know it's a big case. You know what I mean? Because you see a lot of white shirts that show mm-hmm. up, you know, guys that are bosses in the police department instead of uniform guys. And like, um, I'm just thinking back. I mean, I had a, a, a sort of a perverse connection to a lot of these old cases because I wrote about them in real time. And they had, we had one case, the murder in the Met, which was like something out of a Columbo crime series because this, I mean, just envision the Metropolitan Opera, which is one of the citadels to opera throughout the world, a woman during intermission who's a world-class violinist, she goes missing and she's found dead <laughs> hanging from the rafters in the thing and they don't know who did it right. for, for months afterwards. And I took the walk the next day after that murder, I was at the Met covering the thing and they took the reporters through the areas of the Met where she was found, where she like, it was like perverse and then like, I remember going to the, because he wasn't arrested, the uh, guy that they eventually got, I think his name was uh, uh, Stephen Crimmins, I forget his first name, I think it's Crimmins. Craig Crimmins. Craig Crimmins, Craig Crimmins. And um, when he was not arrested, there was a, he was a suspect, I think he came out, and I remember knocking on the door, because I snuck in, there was a bunch of cops <laughs> in the front, I went in through the laundry room window, I was a skinny guy, and I went in there, and I come, come up to the floor, and I knock on the door, and I say, who is it? And I say, I identify myself, and he goes, sis, he's telling, this, this is Craig Crimmins saying this to him. He's 21 at the time. And he's talking to his, like, 14-year-old sister. And he says, there's a reporter at the door. What do I do? I said, right away, I knew he did it. In my oh, mind. Wow. I said to myself, this guy, you know, gut, gut instinct. I yeah. had no uh, evidence and no physical uh, evidence to think of. But I said, a 21-year-old guy asking his sister what to say. His 14-year-old sister's giving him advice. Right. So you guys never got a copy of the book beforehand because you said they did the pictures so you guys just handed it in the press like here's the thing and they added all the pictures to it they added the pictures and then we went through the book and we vetted yeah, yeah we, we kind of vetted all the photos and captioned um, them. we captioned them yeah. so we knew so so they did they did um take our advice on a lot of the pictures and on the layout and stuff they, they were a great great publisher to work with see yeah. you guys are better man than me because if i did a book like this with pictures I don't care if it was like the sh- you know the shittiest little pettit larceny stealing eight dollars. I would have made sure the picture was in there, so I was in there with the perp, looking all good in there. <laughs> so you guys should have had a case that you guys were all on, and you should have been in the picture. The hidden, the hidden uh, little thing was that I was fortunate. I was very fortunate in the sense that I was uh, when I, I left the post in uh, January two thousand and sixteen, and before I left, I um, sat next to the uh, chief librarian, who was uh, a friend of mine, a woman. And the post was, uh, they knew I was doing it. It wasn't like surreptitious or anything like that, but she was able to get me all the photographs. You know, so you're talking, not, not all, <laughs> mm-hmm. like a lot of the photographs that are here that we couldn't get elsewhere, we got through the post. You know? Really? So they were very helpful with yeah, you? Yeah, very helpful. I was going to ask, but I, I thought you guys went there and got the pictures like uh, personally. If you guys saw any other, I guess, murderabilia from the thing, I know that they have... The police lab has a Son of Sam gun and the Mark David Chapman gun. I know they have that displayed. Did you guys get to see any other stuff besides the pictures of the crime scene? One of the fellows that uh, helped me with this thing, uh, gave me one of the pictures. It's the uh, assassination of of, uh, Anastasia. uh, Anastasia, uh, Albert Anastasia, Mm -hmm. which killed, you know, a seminal event in mob lore where he's uh, gunned down in a uh, barber chair in the uh, Park Lane Hotel, I think it is. And... uh, the guy who uh, helped me with that, he um, he actually has that barber chair in his house. Oh, come on. Really? Yeah. See, I'm fascinated by people who collect he that stuff. It, he bought it from Henny Youngman. Henny Youngman had owned it at one time. 
There's a website that sells the stuff. I remember the Milwaukee Police Department a guy got fired because they had Jeffrey Dahmer's yeah. door of his uh, refrigerator. There's a lot. There's a lot of. Um, it's like uh, an underground. But there's a lot of imposters. In oh, of course. There's a lot of uh, people that sell out. Because uh, you know. how can you prove that this one door is Dahmer? He probably sold like 80 of those doors. Yep. All right. So give the actual like describe the books. We're talking about the book and the cases. Describe how the book is done. Well, the book, like it says, covers almost two 200 years of crime. All the crimes either take place in New York City or were solved by the NYPD. So it's, we never were really worried about something that happened in California. As spectacular as that crime could have been, it was not anything we were ever going to write about. And also, the, took, the book actually takes you through a journey of, of crime, uh, an evolution of crime, and an evolution of crime solving. Because we start out when there's no fingerprints, there's, there's absolutely no way to really form a way to solve a crime, yet there are policemen, watchmen that are solving the crimes. And we're moving up as the, the police department is getting more sophisticated. Uh, with Thomas Burns becoming the chief of detectives and the interrogation procedures starting, then fingerprints with Joseph Farratt. And it just goes to Phil wrote one about DNA at the end, about a fashion designer that was killed going to a club that ironically was the same owner of a club with uh, Robert the, Chambers. The preppy boy killer, yes. Yeah, so yeah. we have all these uh, intertwining things happening in the book that when the reader will get a, a, a real sense of crime and, and uh, the progression of the police department and investigations. You know what fascinated me that I didn't realize about? Skimming through the book again, terrorism was a point from the I wrote down yes. in the 20s the right. 40s the mad bomber you didn't realize uh, the world's fair right terrorism has been around forever and that's shocking because it wasn't just always oh, a terrorist there were bombs like there yeah, were, yeah, now, no. that really surprised me going around each person what fascinated you or intrigued you the most <coughs> like, what did you learn the most from doing the book well I mean there's certain things that I had like a um, sort of a um, parenthetical knowledge of. I didn't really know it, but I knew it a little bit. And in the course of trying to tell a story, you really have to saturate yourself in the story. I mean, that's uh, what I, I uh, used to tell people when you're, writing a, when you're writing a news brief for the newspaper, you have to know everything. Because it's like, if you don't know the other stuff, that's all of a sudden you're going to see that in another paper. You're going to say, like, why was I so stupid not to know that? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you have these little... Um, uh, incidents that are sort of uh, noteworthy, you really have to learn a lot about it. And one of them, like, for instance, we had the story about uh, Charles Becker, who was a lieutenant in the NYPD, and he was the only um, police officer in the history of America to ever get the death penalty for uh, a murder conviction mm -hmm. while he was a cop. And, you know, you have to kind of understand there's a lot. There was like three trials in that case, and it was like uh, a whole bunch of, uh, um, um, you know, ins and outs and it's uh, it was very very uh, you know to, to, to someone like myself it's interesting the average person maybe not so much but it's like yeah, there's a lot of nuances to it and what about you guys what any part or any crime or anything that really just fascinated you or got you what I found was that um, even if you go back 150 years things really haven't changed all that much right. you know people were planting bombs a hundred years ago Pretty girls were getting killed, and, and, and when they were in Manhattan, it made the, it made page yeah. one. Um, we cover subversive groups like the Nazis rise, and now we have subversive groups from other areas. So it's really, um, you know, that old axiom is really kind of true. The more things change, they really do st stay the same. Uh, one of the crimes that I wrote about was the uh, bombing at the World's Fair in 1940, which I uh, 
believe it was real, uh, a first responder uh, getting killed, which was a prelude to war, much like 9-11 was, where first responders were killed, and that was really the start of a war. And uh, the woman, uh, one of the detectives that died, uh, Joseph Lynch, his daughter was Easter Lynch. She just <coughs> recently passed away. I had the uh, fortunate to get to know her the last 10 years. She lived over 75 years without her father. She was one of the longest lived orphans. Her father got killed defusing the bomb. And uh, they had five kids. When he got killed, there was no pension for them back then. And the mother of the five kids, she had to work changing sheets in the captain's precinct of the five two where they lived, uh -huh. and they paid her money in lieu of a pension to wow. support the kids. And you learned that from like I learned that from Easter interviewing her about this story. And there's a, another terrific part of that. One of the people that was injured was uh, a patrolman named Emil Viscasil. The shrapnel from the bomb went into his legs, and uh, he couldn't walk very well. A lot of pain. He was laid up for almost two years. Uh, they had developed a, the doctors couldn't get these little fragments out of his legs of metal shards. And a subway engineer and a doctor developed the first metal detector. And it's a vibrating little device. And when it went over metal, it vibrated. And they brought it <coughs> into the operating room with him and passed it over his legs and found all these little scraps of metal <laughs> that they pulled out, allowed him to walk. He never was a policeman again. He had to retire mm -hmm. on a disability. But that device was so effective on him that they immediately shipped it to Pearl Harbor. And it started working on these soldiers that were you know, terribly maimed with metal fragments uh, during the Pearl Harbor attack. So he was patient number one, a real unsung hero. And uh, his son, believe it or not, only lived about three miles from me. That was unbelievable that I was able to get in touch with him and he lived so close and we sat down he showed me his father's medals and all the things that, uh, that uh, his father had gotten from the British government for his role in trying to protect people at that scene. That was actually my next follow-up question. Because these crimes, some of them were older, and you're a reporter, did you guys have to do many interviews for the crime or no? Or did you guys go through the archives and you knew kind of what you were going to do beforehand? Or did you do any follow-ups afterwards? We, we did as many interviews as we could. We would, we would have loved to have done interviews for all these cases. But, you know, some of them were just so old it was, um, it was hard to track people down. But um, one thing that, uh, that I think is very interesting about this book is um, the people we did interview with some of these cases in the 70s and 60s especially. And, uh, for example, there's one guy that's been in jail since 1964 for the career girls' murders. Mm -hmm. These two career girls. You know, back then they weren't, that was a big deal to be a career girl. And this guy has been in jail ever since, uh, since 1964. And Phil and I went up and visited him. And um, we told him, when we went to the prison, and they said, well, you know, the, the guard said, are you family, are you friends? And we, we said, said we, we were friends. We said we were friends. <laughs> and then when the guy came out, he was actually very cordial to us. And he thought we were Quakers, because the Quakers go into prison. The yeah. prisons in New York State and try to convert these people and bring them peace. Spent, but we, we spent the whole afternoon with them. We spent about three hours with them, right? Was that they the, crying. the heroin guy? Was He was the heroin guy. He was guy. a heroin and, addict, yes, yeah. I remember. He started crying in front of us after 50, after over 50 years in jail. And he, we had him reliving the incident wow. and reliving the stuff. And his, you know, his uh, explanation for what happened was, you know, somewhat self serving to say the least. You know, he talked about that he grew up on the Upper East Side. And uh, he uh, was uh, 
you know, Spanish, but, you know, not Puerto Rican. He was, like, from Spain. I think his father was from Spain. Mm -hmm. But he felt the same sting of racial prejudice that anybody would, and that his story was really like a model of West Side Story, which took place, instead of on the West Side, mm -hmm. it took place on the East Side, where all this stuff was happening. And he claimed that that kind of pushed him out of the loop of normalcy and, like, led to him being, you know, then he had a brother that died in a, um, in a paratrooping accident, and the combination of these things going south for him led him to become a heroin addict at the age of like uh, maybe 13, 15, 15 maybe, he was 15 and a heroin addict. And the next thing you know, he was uh, in, the, in an apartment and he decided to uh, do what he did. And you guys, all, did you guys also write about Robert Chambers, the preppy boy yes. killer? Because yes. that's a little sim similar too. His He was on the Upper East Side, I believe, right? Yeah, but it was the inverse. I yes. Mean, he had every advantage. Yes, know, everything. Ways. His mom was kind of a maid or whatever, yeah, but yeah. they had. she made sure he was going to all the best schools yeah, and stuff. Yeah. Because yeah. that story, you know, it's funny, there's, there's a few pages, you know, each crime's only a few pages, but yet books have been written about these Well, that was the challenge to all of us, that we to had to compress it down. All of it, yeah. It was like doing, like, freeze-dried, you know, taking out all the excess, um, you know, stuff that wasn't really uh, part of the uh, central um, story, you know? And it, it was good, because when, when I do, a, I read a lot. I try to read a book a week. That's always my goal every year. So if I'm reading a book, you know, I have a little post-it next to me, and I'll make a note next to it. While I'm doing this, I found myself finishing a chapter, going online, looking up, looking for different pictures or more to it. It was like a fascinating book from the 1800s all the way to now. Now, the book ends in 2010, obviously when it was published. The original was published around 2015 or so. Okay. Uh, but we had to stop somewhere. Well, th that was my and, question. Uh, Where do you like stop? Because every year something arbitrary. can happen. It was arbitrary, but... You know, also, uh, as still someone who's active on the job, I really wasn't that interested in commenting on things that were still yeah, of active course. All because they sense. could use that against the police department in solving a crime. Oh, you have a, a lieutenant. What's he know yeah, yeah. about this crime that's still being tried? So we wanted to wrap up all the crimes that we wrote about. Do you guys read the reviews on the books? Yeah, sure. You know, you read them. I mean, we... I don't think there's anybody that ever, I mean, on Amazon.com, there's always going to be somebody that's disgruntled about one reason or another, you know, as a reader, and they paid their money and they get a chance to say what they want to say. I mean, some people were not very nice, but for the most part, we got very good reviews. The New York Times reviewed it, Your New Metro book, and they yeah. liked it. Yeah, so. and we got the you know, Wall Street Journal, the uh, yeah. uh, Market Watch, you know, they gave us a little plug, and, you know, Newsday and uh, the yeah. Post, and, the, you know, we, we did pretty good. I mean, in terms of that, it was a... Uh, it was uh, very, very refreshing. I even got a, you know, Nick, uh, Nick Pileggi gave us a blurb, you know. Ray Kelly. Ray Kelly. Now, you wrote a book with, so now, I'm going to go back about your, besides just the book, careers now. Because you've been on the job now 30-something years, right? Mm -hmm. Always want to be a cop? I was going to be a teacher. Okay. And uh, people forget, in New York City in the late 70s, was broke. They weren't hiring teachers. And uh, I couldn't get a full-time job. I took the police test as a backup. And uh, <coughs> they called me first. So I went there, and I always figured I could teach in the academy at some point. But one way or another, I ended up at headquarters. Did you always know you wanted to be an author, though? I did from high school. I wrote in high school. I was an editor of the school magazine. I had written a few things. And uh, some of my best grades in college, even though I was a phys ed major, <laughs> I don't look like it now, but <laughs> at one time I was in pretty good shape. And... Uh, I did very well in the creative writing and you know, writing classes. So, I know you wrote a book. You wrote a book of your father, right? Yes, my father. Actually, he wrote two. First, we wrote a novel, Justifiable Homicide, 
and uh, that was uh, by Ballantyne, which is a, a Random House publisher, mm. and uh, that did pretty good. But unfortunately, the editor that bought the book and my support in Ballantyne, they left. You know, and then you, they call it well, you're orphaned. Mm -hmm. You got to try to find someone else, and they were <coughs> going in a different direction. So is uh, which I think I don't know if you had a chance to read it. No, you, you know, sent to me with this one, yeah. Right, but you should take a look at. It. I think you'll get it. It's all set in New York, and uh, the premise was if you remember back in the '80s with drugs and everything, especially in Colombia, where they were killing the Supreme Court and the president. My premise was and how bad drugs were. Here, I said, what if that happened here? What if they decide these powerful drug lords and says, you know what, we're going to take out the government. And what would happen? What would happen to the police? How would the police react? So that was the premises behind, part of behind justifiable homicide. And then after that, I didn't write for a, a while. And then I got a new agent, uh, Rob Wilson, terrific guy. He's a sports guy, though. He writes, like he did Bobby, Bobby Mercer's autobiography, mm -hmm. The Yankee History, a lot of big time sports books. But he took me on, and we were able to get this history uh, the NYPD, the first 50 years, and that actually led to this book because the publishers there read it and liked it and said, well, we have somebody that might be able to write a book we want. And you wrote that book with Breton, or he was just... He did the forward. Okay, okay. So I got him to do the forward before he came back. But the funny thing is when he came back before it was published, I had to jump through hoops to get us to <laughs> let, them let him use the forward because it was now an ethics violation. He was now the police commissioner, oh. and I'm a lieutenant that works under him. And uh, the way we have all these ethics, superiors can't do anything for of course. inferiors. <laughs> and you two always want to be a cop? Uh, no, I want to be a journalist. Okay. I, I went to college for journalism. I have an undergraduate degree in journalism. And um, I had done an internship at the New York Times <coughs> in my senior year in 1980. And that um, actually was a bit of a curse because I, I had such a good time there that summer and I I felt like I was so well prepared to sort of take on the journalistic world that when I sent out all my um, resumes, I only wanted to work as like a major okay. uh, metropolitan. You were bougie, yeah. <laughs> and uh, nobody was nobody was begging Daily for Google. my. Uh, Bob wanted to start at the top and work his way down. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, when you're young and cocky, it's uh, it can be a double-edged sword. So I had taken the test in college. They actually came up to the school I went to and they offered the test like a couple of years earlier so um, same with me it was a it was a good it was a good very good choice for me it was probably one of the best decisions I ever made and you wrote some books too I've written uh, this is I've written or co-written four books including this one Joel Rifkin Joel Rifkin was a college friend of mine oh really yeah he had um, that's kind of like Ann Rule with Ted Bundy yes exactly okay. uh, when I was in college <clears throat> I had gotten a paid assignment for a boxing magazine, and they wanted me to go into Rochester, New York, and uh, cover, a cover a local fighter. And I told them that I knew how to use <coughs> a, a camera, which I didn't. Uh, you know, back then in 1979, it wasn't, it wasn't like it is today. You know, you had to know what you were doing with a camera. So I went to the journalism department. I asked if they had somebody they could recommend, and they, they told me about this student, uh, Joel Rifkin, <laughs> who was like the big shot of the photographic uh, club at the school. So what made that particularly memorable, other than the fact that he became a, uh, a serial killer <laughs> later on, was the local fighter was knocked down a number of times. He really deserved to lose the fight. 
but they gave him the uh, decision and there was a tremendous riot in the arena. And Joel was firing away, taking pictures of chairs flying through the air and people being hit in the head and, and, and bloody faces. And we- He was in his element. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we actually, after the show, we went, there were two dailies in Rochester at the time. And we hustled these photos. We went and had them developed at the newspapers. And we went to both uh, newspapers and um, they published a bunch of the photos the next day. So we were juiced up after it. I remember us driving home and we both knew we wanted to be journalists. You know, we were so excited. It was such a formative experience for us. And obviously your relationship ended with him, it faded or? Uh, he wound up dropping out after mm. that semester. Okay. But oddly enough, when I was in my early years as a cop, you know, I kind of viewed myself as a civil service sellout. You know, I really didn't pursue my dreams. Mm -hmm. And I always fantasized about him because he was so talented. And um, I remember him telling me he wanted to uh, learn how to parachute so he could, he could um, photograph weddings, you know, people <laughs> jumping out of planes and getting, doing their vows. So he was very creative about it. And very, very innovative. And very yeah. passionate about what he wanted to do. <clears throat> and so I always thought this kind of weird, you know, geeky, but very talented guy was doing something really interesting with his life. And then, you know, seven or eight or ten years later, I hear his name on the radio, and I was actually driving to a sergeant's <laughs> promotion class. Okay, okay. And, and it says the, the, the killer is identified as Joe Rifkin, a loner from East Meadow, New York. And I was on the Long Island Expressway, and I, 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 almost, I, mean, I almost lost control of the car. Wow. Never reached out to him, obviously, or anything, right? No, he did. I did reach out. To oh, that's really? That's the book. led to the book. Oh, okay. I thought you just wrote the book from... No, oh, no, no. sat down with What me. happened was a couple of years later... See, I find the jailhouse interviews and stuff fascinating. I, I find it fascinating. So you reached out to him. Okay. Well, what, the, the reason I reached <laughs> out to him, I was a little wary of reaching out to him <clears> because of all the rules the police department yeah. has about talking to you know, convicts and convicted people. But I saw um, Geraldo Rivera interviewing him on TV. And he said something, you know, Joel was promoting this Aloha house. Joel was Jewish, and Aloha means sanctuary. So he was promoting this, this um, uh, place where women could go and, and, you know, they could be safe from, you know, if they were homeless or drug addicts or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And Geraldo said to him, uh, do you feel bad about all these women you killed? And Joel surprisingly said, no, I want to, but I can't. So I thought that was such a great opening to probe his brain. You know, for a guy to admit that, usually every convict says, I wish I could take the time back. I wish I could put myself in their place. Instead, uh, Geraldo says, goes, you know, says something like, I'd like to come across this table and wring your neck, just like you rang the neck of those girls. Oh, he missed the opportunity. He missed such a fantastic oh. opportunity. I, I wrote a letter to Joel the next day. And I didn't hear from him at first. About six months later, I wrote him again. And then we started communicating. He remembered you, obviously. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, first I went to Attica uh, about two or three times, and then he got transferred to Clinton, and I went to Clinton about three or four times. So I probably <coughs> have about, you know, 25 hours of tape with him. Wow. And he, he spilled his guts. You know, he's, he makes no excuses. He doesn't try to sugarcoat anything. He's very, he's more than willing to, to discuss his motivations. And, and then you also wrote the book about Mark Fisher murder. Yes. And why is that, if you want to just tell what that whole crime is, because why is there still a controversy and there's still articles, there was an article written I think last month about this case. Can you just give the, because that case, kind of another case, then maybe because it happened in Brooklyn, 
a guy with a girl just it was all over the country these right. stories Mark Fisher was a very clean-cut college kid from New Jersey going to school in Fairfield, Connecticut. He had never been in New York before this holiday weekend. So he came to Manhattan. He was all full of, you know, piss and vinegar. And he, uh, he was excited to be in Manhattan for the first time. And he saw some girls that he knew from Fairfield. They wound up getting thrown out of a couple of bars because they were not 21. So they went to a, um, a party in Brooklyn with uh, some kids that were not college kids, were not that clean cut. Um, and to make a long story short, you know, uh, there was some, a bit of a beef there, and he wound up being killed. And what was particularly strange about that case was the fact there were a lot of these college students were very wealthy, and some of their fathers were very renowned defense attorneys. And every, everybody lawyered up, like, from day one. So that case was actually not solved for over a year. And the gunman, the actual gunman, his name was Antonio Russo, he had dreadlocks, he cut the dreadlocks off the next day, <laughs> he flew to California for a couple of weeks. You know, the case against him was very strong. The case against the other fellow, John Juca, whose house the party was at, he was convicted mainly on the statements of a neighbor, another, another guy his age that he grew up with, who basically said he knew nothing and lied to the police for a year. And then he said that John Juca had told him he gave Antonio the Russo the gun and said, go show him what's up. And that's basically what he was, uh, the words that convicted him. So he's, that case is still being disputed in the courts all these years later. And there's a good possibility the case might be thrown out. It was um, the subject of a 2020 episode in the past couple of months. Writing a book like that, this is more of a personal question. Are you ever nervous that someone else is going to grab the case before you? Like you're putting in a lot of time, a lot of work doing this book. Are you ever worried like, and I'm a few few days away from it, shit, someone else just put the book in? Is that always something nervous? Like to get you? Uh, I wouldn't say you get nervous about it, but um, it's certainly something you think about. Um, a lot of people in, in these cases, they tell you that they've been approached by all sorts of other people that offered them money, and it's probably yeah, of course. not true. And you just tell them, I can't offer you money, but I can tell your side of the story. And here's my resume, and you can look at other stuff I've written, and I'm very fair and, and impartial. And you get good, re you got good reviews on that one, too. Yeah, the Rifkin, the Rifkin book was another labor of love. I really enjoyed um And what was the other one? Book. You said four books. There was another book called Lethal Embrace. It was about a woman um, who hired somebody to kill her husband. He owned a gym at the Dolphin Fitness Club at Amityville, New York. So she hired this hitman who she actually got pregnant by, and her <laughs> and her husband thought that the baby was his, and then the dim-witted hitman killed the wrong guy. He killed the uh, business partner by accident, oh, and that was another case that took a couple of years and a lot of good police work to solve. Being authors, being a reporter, when you get this stuff, do you think right away like I want to write a book about that, or I want to write an article about that right away? Is that like how your brain thinks? Well, you know, a lot of times in the news business, it's uh, generated by um, events that are happening in real time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have stories that are going to be eternal. Since this thing started, um, you know, this, this book goes back 175 years, but even before that, in the early, there's eternal verities, you might call it. Like, in other words, when you have somebody who is um, a person of uh, stature and reputation and wealth, and something uh, un un um, 
anomalous happens to that person, that's going to be an instantaneous story. Mm -hmm. Like we have the story of Sanford White in our book, right. right? You know, and like Sanford White was like the Virginia. preeminent architect in the uh, in the United States, and um, he was um, having a uh, uh, a liaison with a young girl, and uh, you know, years later, the guy uh, what was the uh, defendant's name that the guy killed him? Um, I forget. But in any event, this, this he ends up getting shot and killed by a jilted husband who finds out that five years earlier, when his now wife was like maybe 16, <laughs> mm -hmm. that Sanford White allegedly violated her. You know, sexually, uh, took advantage of her. Yeah, Henry Thaw. Harry Thaw. Henry, Henry, uh, Harry Thaw, yeah. Harry Thaw. Yeah, Harry Thaw. Loaded. Harry Loaded, Thaw. yeah. He's a, a, a Pittsburgh uh, uh, steel. steel magnate, I believe, the family. And uh, he ends up killing this uh, guy as the thing. So, I mean, I only use that as a template, you know, because every story that is going to be sort of um, dominating the news for a period of time has a, uh, generally has a class uh, element to it. You know, somebody who's very rich and powerful in, in, a, in, a, in a state of extremis. You know, if you find somebody that that happens to, everybody likes to know that however lousy their life may be, mm -hmm. at least I'm not that guy. Let me ask you a question. What is that? What is that? That great term you say that in the news business about the, the the best headline? It's either a young. Oh yeah. This is terrific. I, I what I say? I say it's either like a uh, a, a young girl. Uh, what I, I forget what it is. I forget what it is. What, the worst thing is a politician to be called oh, yeah. either a it, it, either a young girl or a, uh, or a, um, uh, that's dead or or a young or a young boy who's alive. <laughs> <laughs> How much has I know you're retired now, right? Yeah, well, I'm out of the business. How much has it re um, the job of reporting changed with Twitter now that it has to be instantaneous? That and a lot of times the instantaneous tweet is wrong. It's erroneous. Absolutely. But it doesn't matter. Absolutely. You have to get the story out. <laughs> there must be so much pressure back then. You guys took your job, took your time. But yeah, it's funny you say that. You, you did, did a job. Boom. Here's what we're gonna do. Here's the story. I'm very proud of this work. Now it's, hey, I'm tweeting this. It might be wrong. You're not even held accountable to you, it, is that? What you said is very astute because I was telling this to Bob on Friday that, um, you know, there's a lot of high points. Of, I'm sorry, there's a lot of high points of my uh, career in my mind in terms of, like, I really remember it and, uh, vividly and saying how privileged I was to be in this moment of time to be doing this thing. I covered the John Gotti trial, mm -hmm. you know, years ago. We talked to John Gotti every day for six months and this story and that story. But uh, one of the stories I remember covering was an interview I got to interview this guy by the name of Peter Malcolm. Peter Malcolm doesn't mean anything to most people, and it should. Nope. But uh, this guy, uh, Sid Zion, who owned the bar about maybe uh, uh, 15 blocks from here on 46th Street and, uh, and 7th Avenue, named Broadway Joe's. Peter Ma uh, Sid Zion was a guy who owned the bar. He was a former U.S. attorney, a prosecutor, and a journalist. And uh, he called up the New York Post, and I got sent there, okay. and he also called up somebody from the Daily News, and we went to meet Peter Malcolm. Peter Malcolm was the guy who never had given an interview before, who kidnapped Adolf Eichmann out of Argentina. I just read that book. And they made a movie out of it. I just read that book. So now you have to understand this, that in other words, when I interviewed him that night with this guy, Rich Rosen, <laughs> who was an editor of the Daily News, I knew him as a colleague, you know, we're, we're there together from different news organizations, and we're doing it on deadline. And in other words, the theory is that we're going to write the story. You know, the story gets handed in 45 minutes later because it doesn't take you long, longer than an hour to write a story about your interview if okay. you're a crackerjack reporter, you know. So you get the story in, 
and the story runs the next day. What happened for the Post, and I assume it happened for the news, because the news didn't run it, and we didn't run it. And the reason why we didn't run it, it was no, no way of vetting it. We didn't have it. In other words, he never gave an interview before. We have a representation from a wow. guy from, from, from uh, he's the, a Mossad agent, mm -hmm. underground for like 30 years, 40 years. And all of a sudden, he's coming out that he has this incredible story. And, and I remember to this day, he was very tall, very angular, sort of um, what they call like an ectomorph, I guess, the person, you know, very skinny. And um, he would go like, after you. After you, and I was thinking to myself, this guy could probably kill you five ways to Sunday. You know what I mean? He's a real secret agent, you know, for years and years. But the Post, you know, everybody thinks that nowadays they say everything in the paper is made up, mm -hmm. fake news, blah, blah, blah. But the reality was is that the Post didn't want to run the story for fear of being wrong. And the Daily News didn't run the story either. And the Daily News didn't call the Post, and the Post mm -hmm. didn't call the Daily News. Sometimes, you know, there's horse trading. And the story Nothing just like died. The story, no, the story didn't die. I mean, the television apparently got some wind mm -hmm. of it, and they ran with it on Sunday. But in other words, we, we just said, hey, it's not worth running a story that we can't determine the authenticity of it. We didn't think that Sid Zion was maybe lying to us, mm -hmm. but maybe he got played by this guy. Maybe somebody else lied to him. So, you know, said, why, why do we have to be the first? Sometimes there's an old saying in the newspaper business, sometimes it's not good to be the first to write a, to write a story, you know? And was he the guy involved? He was, in absolutely oh, he was the guy. That didn't bother you? <laughs> well, it bothers me in the sense that, uh, you know, I... Uh, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, in other words, I understand the editorial decisions, you know. I mean, I have other stories that I've done that bothered me more. They got killed for, uh, you know, sort of political things mm -hmm. or whatever. What is it? They, they kind of, you know, spiked it, you know, and they just didn't run it. But uh, I understood it, you know. You, men you mentioned Gotti. He has kind of a Pablo Escobar-esque type. Yeah. Where he, whatever he did, people still love and adore him. Knowing him for six months, did he... You said you interviewed him forever. Yeah, well, Did he a lot of rope times. you in like you didn't think, like, hey, this guy can't be that bad of a dude? No, I mean, he was like a sort of, um, uh, you know, behind, there was a lot of uh, bluster and a lot of charm. Mm -hmm. He had like a sort of a... Uh, charisma? A, there was a charisma to him, you know. It was okay. like a, a white heat, like, you know, that, that kind of he generated and that you, he was very, very... Um, confident of his public persona and he enjoyed the the uh, he enjoyed the luminescence mm -hmm. that, he, that he projected so to speak you know some people not so much you know what I mean they'd rather be in the back of a room like looking over a ledger book like the guy he was working with uh, Paul Castellano mm -hmm. you know he owned like you know meat company and he was like a real old school guy he didn't want any of this publicity this was not for him but God he was a guy that liked his uh, you know monogram socks he liked to talk about uh, you know, uh, you like to be seen at the places that, you know, if you're a mob boss, you don't get seen mm -hmm. in the places like that. And you want to be out. seen. Yeah. And it's, it's still, you remember the names. He was at, the, was it the Raven, the Raven Eye? Raven Eye. Yeah. Like, you know the, the places where it's John Gotti hung out. Early on in the, in the podcast, you mentioned the criminals, you know, they're still the same. And whenever everybody reads the book or talks about policing, like, oh, it's so advanced now with DNA and photos everywhere. I don't know how people got caught in the 1800s doing crimes because... Everyone should have got away. You mentioned that criminals stayed the same, and it's so true in the books. Like, because every book is like, oh, but everyone, you know, police advanced, everything advanced, but the criminals kept did the same exact things that they were back then. Isn't that weird that they never advanced anything they were doing? That's a, that's another very astute point. Um, you know, back then we had what was called the third degree. <laughs> that's um, that's covered in the book. Yeah. Um, you know, that's uh, you know aggressive tactics by the police by the police personnel which we certainly don't do now. Um, and then that graduated to other things, you know, the, uh, the fingerprinting, the measurement of facial features. Right. Um, and I remember 
I remember back in the early 90s, I was working as a detective, and there was a homicide in the 66th Precinct in Brooklyn, and the killer left a glove behind. And uh, it was in the winter. And the glove really meant nothing. You know, mm -hmm. D we heard about DNA, but DNA really meant nothing to, know, to anybody until the O.J. Simpson trial. And <clears throat> we wound up being able to identify the guy, not through <coughs> DNA or anything like that, but his, his, his confederate gave him up. And we had to trick him into a confession. Because uh, you know, it, it, just because his accomplice said he did it, that's not good enough, you know, to go to trial. You have to have more. Right. So I said, you know, we know you did it, and, and he said, well, what about uh, who told you? I said, nobody told us. And he said, the glove, DNA. And I, <laughs> and I, I was shocked. I said, that's right. <laughs> and because DNA was still sort of like this cryptic thing in its infancy, and I was shocked that he felt that he believed it. It, it was unbelievable. And this guy had actually been paroled for another murder. He yeah. had served 15 years. You would think he would have been a more savvy, you know, killer. murderer. It comes yeah. down to, to the notion that, you know, in order to, for there to be smart journalists and smart detectives, there has to be a lot of dumb criminals. A lot of it. dumb criminals. You know, I had a friend of mine who was a uh, homicide. Uh, um, he worked in the homicide squad in South Brooklyn. And uh, he swore to me. And I always liked felt I, I'd heard the story from other cops but he swore that it was true for him that he had a guy in the box that he knew did a crime and he said we know it's you and he says what do you mean he says we know it's you and the guy says you can't know it's me he says listen we know all these advances in technology he says we went down to the medical examiner's office and we looked at the dead guy and we took his eyes out and we looked at <laughs> and we looked at the film in his eyes and the last thing he saw was you and he goes, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he squatted it. it was I true. It. So you guys have legit legendary careers and everything. All retired now, not you, Lieutenant. No. What do you miss the most, right? Like, what do you miss the most about the police department itself? I missed, I loved working in the squad. I was there for, for about seven or eight years. <coughs> the, the hours were long. The hours were difficult. But it was, um, it was, it really was a lot like Barney Miller. Do you remember that? You might be a little young. I don't watch TV. I don't, I don't. Okay. <laughs> But there, there's so many characters, so many personalities, and you just you, you would just get um, ribbing, right? Yeah, a lot of ribbing, a lot of ball breaking. But um, you know, you would run a, you know run together on a big case or even a small case, and it was it was just a lot of fun. The best eight years of my life was in uh, in the squad. And what do you miss the most? Because now you've been thirty-something years. Looking back thirty years ago, what do you miss the most about the whole thing? Well, for me. Uh I, I really did enjoy it when I was in anti-crime and plain clothes. I did pretty well with that. But when I got promoted, uh, as you get a lieutenant, it's really an administrative rank, mm -hmm. and I've been at headquarters for 30 years. So uh, I enjoyed the camaraderie of being on patrol with the squad and, and all the, uh, the antics. But when you're in an office headquarters, it's pretty sterile, I'll tell you the truth. And uh, now the rules, are, you know. Even look at so you can't say nothing. <laughs> so you retire to your cubicle, and that's how they want it. They've built us all these cubicles, and you kind of do your thing. I hate to say the word favorite because that sounds kind of morbid, but writing this book because we talked, I want to make sure we talked about who the authors were. Cause sometimes people want yeah. to hear the book. What was your favorite crime to talk about? And people obviously bring up crimes when a cop goes to a party or a reporter. It's always the same thing. Oh, this is. Bernie the cop, Mike the cop, Rob the cop, Jim the reporter. What was your favorite thing to talk about? If you were talking about amongst your, like yourself, not to the you know civilian public, what was your favorite crime in your book to write about? 
on the book. Yeah. Uh, did I wrote about? Well, I'll tell you, not one that I wrote about, but Phil had written, uh, I think, or about 9/11. Uh, but one of the cops, I'm sure, not the 9/11, the 1993 World's right. Fair bombing. One of the cops, Trade Center. Trade Center. I'm all confused with all my bombings. <laughs> all the but, terrorism bombings we talked about. Right, they're all about. But the world, uh, the first World Trade Center, which we call the forgotten uh, bombing. Uh, one of the cops was an emergency service. Uh, I'm sorry, a bomb squad. I'm just trying to remember everything. But Donald Sadow. Anyways. Donald was a cop with me in the 17th precinct, uh, and he had went to uh, automotive trade school, which now you couldn't get on the job. Automotive trade school wasn't, you know, you have to have to college. So he was in the bomb squad, and the bomb hit, went off, and it left this huge cavern in the bottom of uh, World Trade Center. And uh, on Sunday, the, the FBI was taking over the, t uh, the investigation on Monday. The bomb, I think, went off on Friday. And they, everybody was coming there on Sunday to meet. And the FBI uh, came and they said, okay, could you take some of these guys down this crater just to show this, because these are guys from all over the country now are converging on New York. And so Donald uh, is one of the guys taking them down. And he takes down, uh, and I think it was an ATF guy. He had been an explosive uh, guy in the Army or something. And when he goes down there, uh, he starts looking around. Now, he's been down there a couple times, but everything congeals for him. It comes together, and he looks, and, and all of a sudden he sees the uh, housing of an axle where the gears are of a, a truck or something. He says, this is where the explosion was. This is the vehicle, and we've got to get this out of here right now because this <laughs> contains the evidence. He knew that there was confidential serial numbers contained inside that gear housing. They had to get out of there before. That was before the police or everyone knew about it? No. They didn't know what was in there. They didn't know who had done anything. We had nothing. We just had this big explosion, and now we're starting to look at the crime scene. And the FBI is going to come and take over, but our bomb squad guys are still there. And they've been told by the FBI, don't touch anything. And he says, no, we've got to get this out of wow. here. Wow. So that, that was the first clue. Right, the main oh. clue. So he they talks to his guys. They get a body bag, and they're going to roll it out as a body. <laughs> And instead of taking it to a hospital, they're going to get it to the lab. And the next day, of course, the FBI finds out what he did, and the director in charge of investigation, the special agent, says, you'll never work again. It's over for you. I told you not to touch anything. About an hour later, a call comes. We traced the truck to a car rental in New Jersey. We know who rented it and everything. And they end up sending the FBI undercover, and the guy came back for his refund because he nope. claimed the car was stolen. <laughs> and uh, they arrested him. But if I'm saying is they always talk about college, you need this, mm -hmm. you need that. You really mm -hmm. need. And one thing about the police, which uh, Bob will tell you, is there's so many guys with so many backgrounds that Skills. that's what makes us good as a team because we can find somebody that could do something. So uh, Donald is the guy that solves the case, really. <coughs> and, he, and he really is an unsung hero. And that's another thing that we try to Sorry. put in the book is these unsung hero guys. His name isn't anywhere really that you'll see, except you'll see it here. Mm -hmm. And uh, he ends up uh, getting promoted uh, to second grade uh, in like a private ceremony. Again, why? Because they don't want to embarrass of other people that were uh, not happy with what he had done. But had he not done it, and the reason he wanted to get out of there because the ceiling and the structure was so bad from this, and uh, that it could have fallen down, and then it would have lost 
all, a lot of its value because it had to be here where they found it. It couldn't be found down the subway mm-hmm. tracks four floors below. That's fascinating. How about you? Your favorite crime or something to write um, about here? Well, let me see. I mean, in other words, I mentioned the um, the uh, Lieutenant Becker case. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I kind of had a partiality to that case because of the fact that, you know, you, you said you discover things as you go along. Yeah. And I discovered that um, in that case, the um, F. Scott Fitzgerald in uh, The Great Gatsby, mm-hmm. he referred to the Lieutenant Becker killing. <laughs> I said, how cool is that? You know what I mean? I was an, uh, an English teacher briefly before mm-hmm. I went into the newspaper business, so I have an appreciation for like uh, stuff like that. And the idea that, that F. Scott Fitzgerald mentioned this guy was interesting. And even, it goes on later, there was the uh, Tiffany case. We had a Tiffany case. The Tiffany the, heist. The, the Tiffany heist. And, um, you know, there's a mention in um, Breakfast at Tiffany's about how nothing bad could ever happen in Tiffany's <laughs> because they got the smell of alligator, wealthy men. You know, there's a Holly Golightly, the character written by Truman Capote. And, um, you know, there's a, uh, sometimes there's the other side of what journalism is about, which is the fact that sometimes people come in there and they decide to rob the place, you know. And fa- favorite thing you wrote about? Uh, it was the first story that I thought of when I found out what... Um, what era I was going to be writing about. And it's the Museum of Natural History heist in mm-hmm. 1964. And these two very dashing, great handsome, great story. young guys. One was a, a, a violin prodigy and a surfing champion. His name was Jack Murphy. He was known as Jack uh, Murph the Surf. They actually climbed high into the, the Museum of Natural History, then lowered themselves in and robbed some of the most valuable jewelry in, in the world. So the jewelry was missing for quite some time. They arrested the, the perpetrators fairly quickly, but they didn't recover the jewelry. And I knew the detective, who's still alive, he was on the case, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to write about this, because I'm so fond of this detective. And he said uh, they actually took these guys out of jail, brought them to Florida, where they conducted this sweep of all these you know, sleazy you know, uh, downtown places in Miami and Fort Lauderdale. But when they got off the airplane with these guys in, in, cha- in shackles on their, on their ankles, they had rented a black sedan to drive around. You've got to remember, the you know, police department is very cheap. And they said, we're not, they said, uh, Jack, that was, they were calling the detective Jack, Jack McDowell. They said, we're not getting in that car. You've got to get a red convertible. You know, we're, uh, you know, we have a reputation to uphold. And they, because there was so much pressure to, to recover this, um, these gems, they did rent a red convertible. Really? And that was never in any of the previous um, books or movies or anything like that. That's so wild, isn't it? It's and, and to this day, um, Jack McNally is in touch with Murph to Surf, who uh, went, went on to commit some other crimes, served a lot of time in jail. Yeah, committed murder. a murder, and he's now a, a, a minister who travels all over the world uh, preaching the gospel. So now, two of you guys are authors. Are there, is there a next book for you, what you want to do next? Do you, is that always on your mind, or is, is that like a big investment, too? Like It's a big investment of time. Yeah. And uh, most books are written on spec, so uh, you really have to, if you, you got to really be determined. And uh, You got to like engross yourself in right. the story to be, yeah. So is there any crime cases? Because there has to be crime cases. I thought Howard Schechter is a, a friend. Lieutenant, you had right. him on. You, you're friends with him, too. And he tells me, he's like, I can't do stories about now. I just can't do it with right. this. And he, he, he made the point we mentioned about Twitter. He goes, you want to know why? If there's a crime now, there's 50,000 people tweeting about it. 
it loses its like sensation. And that's why the truth, if there's a book yeah, it's wrong. Yeah, and ninety nine percent of it's wrong. So he writes about the 1800s, right. you know, the early 1900s, 1930s and 40s. He goes, because it's definitive stuff. Here's the crime case. Here's the interviews. Boom. To write a story about now, that's why the Mark Fisher case, I'm going to get that book. I'm fascinated by it. Did you f feel any hurdles writing that book? No, it was actually pretty smooth sailing. Once I got cooperation of the right people, um, it was fine for me. But I heard that I caused a lot of commotion at the Brooklyn DA's office because I did have the cooperation of some people there. And as you know, that case has since become very controversial. And, um, you know, my book, the fact that I was, I was given pretty, pretty uh, free access to a lot of the documents and stuff um, didn't sit well with a lot of people. I ask this question to everyone who comes on my show, and you guys are in a different realm, but so it's cool. I've had a lot, of, most of my guests are celebrities and athletes. And I always ask them, if we're at a bar and we're hanging out, Who's the coolest person in your phone that if you texted them, they would text you back? Do you guys have any interesting answers with that? <laughs> and I mean from episode uh, one to episode like 440 I'm at, I ask everyone, hey, we're at a bar. You want to impress somebody. Who's the coolest I, person? I lost the number, but I used to be Who? friendly with uh, Dr. Ruth Westheimer. <laughs> oh, that's a good answer. That's a, <laughs> I don't have a number now. <laughs> but she was, uh, she was, I met her on a story once, and she, was, uh, she said to me, uh, there was a... Uh, a community policing thing where I think uh, 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 Bratton or Kelly was talking. I think it was maybe Bratton. And I uh, needed to get to a phone because I didn't have a cell phone. This had to be like 99 or something like that. <laughs> and um, I see her there and she said, what are you looking for? I said, a phone. And I said, oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Westheimer. And she says, you're very polite. I said to myself, I said, yeah, my parents don't think so. He says, give me your number. You call my father. He says, your son's very polite. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> Any cool people on the phone that would... Um, probably the one of the people I admire the most, even though you know for for some reasons that people might disagree with, mm -hmm. but a boxer by the name of Chuck Wepner. Are you familiar with him? I am the real life Rocky. Of course, I'm very good friends with him. I've written oh, many, really? many articles. You're about a big him. boxing guy. Well, I, I've written about boxing over he the years. He also fought. Yeah, and Chuck really? has been a um, tremendous friend uh, on a on a very personal level. But what I like about him. Other than you know his friendship is the fact that I don't know if you're aware of his his um, drug conviction mm -hmm. and he went to jail and he had the opportunity to uh, become an informant and he didn't and he did the time and and some people um, in the law enforcement community you know realized it was an anomaly and they worked to get him out into a uh, intensive uh, supervision program and he's just um, uh, one of the most decent people I've ever met. That's a and great answer, best, by the way. Best friend. That's a is it really? That's a great answer. He's down in Philly now, right? He lives in Bayonne. He lives um, in the same town he grew up in. The Bayonne Bleeder. The right? Bayonne Bleeder was. He doesn't like that name. <laughs> <laughs> that was his. Uh, but that was his. That's a really good answer, by the way. Him and uh, Shavala, right, had a fight for like who uh, who got cut up more. He fought uh, Ali too, right? Yeah, he became the real life Rocky mm -hmm. after fighting. Yeah. Um, Ali and, le and almost less in a distance yeah. with 19 seconds to go right. and he's in his he's, he's going to turn 80 in March and um, he's he's lucid he's intelligent he remembers everything he's got a mind like a vault we're going to go out there we'll do a show with him seriously he's I, terrific he's I, a great great interview we're going to get him on anyone cool on your phone uh, it was a funny story a, a woman called me and she was writing a, a book and she, was part one of their main characters was going to be a police officer in the 1940s. I didn't know who the woman was, but she said, "Will you mind meeting me to talk about it?" And I said, "Oh, okay. I don't 
I'll take you out to dinner. So I met her, and she's talking. She says, how do you write? Ba, ba, ba. And I really don't know too much. She was an attractive woman. It turned out it was Elizabeth Gilbert. I don't know if you know her, but she wrote Eat, Love, Pray. Oh, of course. Oh, I know who that is. And she's got a tremendous following, bigger than anybody, you know, one of the most popular authors in the country. And she's asking me all these questions. I don't know who the heck she is. <laughs> <laughs> Bragging about my little books. <laughs> well, she's selling millions. <laughs> but she's asking all these questions about her, that she wants her character to be authentic. And uh, so... Uh, have, uh, had, you call, had you come to know her? They called me. Oh, yeah, they called you. To see. You're the go-to guy. Looking for somebody that knew something about the police in the uh. 40s. And her character, uh, she usually writes, she doesn't really write fiction that much, but now she was going to write a fiction. It's going to come out soon, too. And so we're sitting down at dinner, and we're talking. She has her, a rep with her, and I don't know who they are. She just says, Liz. <laughs> you know, I really didn't. And But they're asking me all these questions, and it turned out it was... Uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, who uh, Julia Roberts played her in the movie, and, uh, and she'd given me, a, uh, after me, a couple of books that she signed, and she was very friendly, and, uh, you know, I still have her information, so if I ever That's had answer. to really push somebody <laughs> big time, I would try to get her. All right, we're going to go back to the book. Cool, you guys hang out for a few more minutes? Yeah, sure. sure. Why is the Lindbergh case in the book? Oh, that's a Bernie, that's a Bernie question. Oh, yeah, because it was solved by the NYPD, which uh, a lot of people don't really know because they happened in New Jersey but like I said my earlier I said either crime was uh, committed in New York City or solved by the NYPD and I'm glad because when you when I got the book originally um, I don't know if I even if we talked beforehand or I think I, I saw it in the library that's when I originally got the book the hardcover one and I saw Lindbergh I'm like oh they're digging they're digging for a year nothing must have happened but so why is the Lindbergh in it now well it, it's interesting it's so after uh, the kidnapping takes place, the New Jersey State Troopers are investigating, and uh, Norman Schwarzkopf's father is in charge of the uh, New Jersey Troopers back then, the famous general. Of course, Storm and Norman. So, right. So uh, they're not having any uh, real success with it. And the NYPD, from the minute it happened, uh, Lindbergh was very popular in New York City. He made a big ticker tape parade. He was like the man. So they, they uh, when they heard about the killing, they started checking everybody coming through the Holland Tunnel to see if maybe some killer, they were going to catch him. That would be a real needle in a haystack. <laughs> but they were doing it. And then it turned out a couple of letters for ransom were postmarked in Brooklyn. So now we're more involved. And uh, the police commissioner goes to Lindbergh. He says, listen, I want to stake out these mailboxes. And uh, if we're going to follow some people look suspicious, Suspicious, mm -hmm. and maybe we'll come up. Lindbergh nixed it. He said no. Uh, he told the police commissioner, "I don't want you guys making a raid and getting killing my kid." And he stopped it. And he said, "If you do, I'll have your job." He tells the police commissioner. And he had Mulroney, he had that much pull. he had that much pull, so Mulroney backed off. But we continued the investigation. What we did now. Uh, so what happens is Lindbergh doesn't talk with the police. He ends up paying some money up in the Bronx in the cemetery. And uh, doesn't tell the police till he tries to follow the uh, instructions he's given turn out to be totally bogus. The kid is found a couple months later dead, very close to his estate in New Jersey. But the one thing Lindbergh does, thank God, is he writes the serial number of all the dollars you know that he gives them. And uh, the police here in New York start tracking them as they're getting turned in. They give them to all the banks, and they're getting turned in, and they start coming up with an idea where these uh, money is coming from and it's coming 
basically being turned into Bronx and in Yorkville, German neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And a bill comes in. Uh, it was back then. It was gold certificates, okay. and we we're switching to silver. So there was <coughs> concern that the gold certificate would, the government wouldn't take it anymore as currency. So now this guy's got fifty thousand dollars of gold certificates. <laughs> he got to start spending the hell out of them fast. So he's spending them, and now the, he buys some gas. And back then, you could fill up a car for like eighty-five cents. He gives him like a ten-dollar gold certificate or something. And the gas station attendants concerned that I'll take this money and I'll get stuck with it. And I'll get stuck with it. So he writes the license plate on the bill Holy and crap. turns it into the bank. And the bank gets it, sees it's on the list. Contacts the police and they see uh, the uh, where it came from. Turn out it was a gas station. Go back there and he shows the plate oh, was on it. That traces them to Bruno Hotman and one thing leads to another. And they finally capture him and they recover a substantial amount of uh, ransom money and some fragments from what they believe was the ladder and a number of other things. And uh, Hotman, although he denies it, he went to the electric chair. Dog Day Afternoon was written about in the book. Yeah. These New York things, and we started the show basically talking about it. They become Hollywood movies from all being in all New the York. Time. All the time. And you know, Derek Jeter, when he retired, he said his only regret playing for the Yankees is that he didn't appreciate the moment when it happened. And he said, I didn't appreciate 98 or 99 because I was looking forward to 2000 or right. 2001. Looking at these things when they happen, you never think it's going to be more than, you know, most of the cops you talk to, like, Holy crap! I'm working 12 hours overtime, standing out here doing this, and yet some of these stuff are turning into movies, Billy Joel songs. It's amazing writing it. And the one thing I saw about the book was the unsolved uh, crimes. And you wrote that. You emailed me right. that people have asked you about the unsolved crimes in the book. Is that frustrating to write about an unsolved crime? Because there's no period. There's no end at the end of it. Well, I mean, from a narrative standpoint, you always want a. Uh a conclusion that ends with a finality. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that doesn't take place when there's not a soft crime. And in other words, I can't, I've been a journalist rather than ever being a policeman, I can't, I can only surmise that for most cops that I know, you know, not getting the bad guy is, you know, is the, is the whole thing. It's like, you know, uh, it's like in the Maltese Falcon, he says, you know, this is the nat it's not the natural order of things to let you go, you know what I mean? He says the, the, uh, the woman at the end of that thing. So when you have somebody that's, uh, Done a done a bad thing or done a bad crime. You hope that he could be brought to justice, and uh, you also want to be able to tell the story in a narrative arc where the crime begins, the crime ends, and there's uh, some sort of justice at the end of it. Plug the book where you can get the book, and everything. Who wants to be the plugger? Well, <laughs> case files of the NYPD is available at sort of any bookstore, Barnes and Noble, mysterious bookshop down here in Lower Manhattan, where we had uh, debuted our book. The, uh, it was a record sales that night, never been beat. Oh, really? Yeah. And they have big time authors there, so we're, we're up Ooh, there. We sell 120 copies, I think. Something no, 240. 240. Yeah. Really? That was at the hardcover at 40 bucks a pop. <clears throat> yes. So they made eight, like 8,000, 9,000 in two hours. That's a big, a big. <laughs> nut. That's a big hit. Yeah. So they, uh, and then of course it's available at Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com. Uh, it's available as an audio book. It's available. Who, who, who did the audio reading? They hired uh, an actor, uh, but I did the, the introduction. So did it was did my, you? My claim to fame okay. introduction. And they brought in a guy who did a terrific job. Uh, he had ability to do a lot of different voices and play characters or go into characters. So he did a very good job. And uh, 
it's, uh, case files of the NYPD is the soft cover version, but undisclosed files of the police is the hardcover version. And uh, I know it's available in the Strand. On, yeah, the Strand. On, on, Actually, this is their feature book yes. for Christmas season. That's what I was going to tell you. Case files of the 12th NYPD. and Broadway. I was yep. there the other day, and I saw it in front. Yep. The, I was very the excited. photographs are uh, stupendous. I mean, when I saw this book for the first time, you know, I'm obviously a partisan, but I was absolutely uh, blown away by the uh, uh, how pretty it is. Still slept with it for yeah. a while. <laughs> he was carrying yeah. it everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It was dog-eared like after two days. He was showing it to everybody. That's true. Uh, I'm yeah. gonna th- I'm I don't gonna have th- children. I got this is my child. Yeah. <laughs> this is your baby. My father's not a reader at all, and this is the truth. After I got the after I read the book. He'll read a few crime books. Uh, you, you mentioned the Bobby Mercer book. It's right. funny because I actually bought him that okay. book. And uh, so he's not a big reader. I actually got him this book because I knew he likes crime, NYPD, New York City. It's great. He grew up in Brooklyn. And he loved it because four, four or five pages, a lot of pictures. But it's the ultimate coffee table book. Yeah. Right. And it's so interesting because you're reading books. Or bathroom book. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> the ultimate cause instead of being on your phone in the yeah. bathroom. But some of the cases, it's just amazing. I'm fascinated by this book. Well, you get instant gratification. You you read about the you read about the crime. You see it be solved in like five minutes, and you see some great photos. So it doesn't. Uh, I know when I'm reading a book, I love. Um, I hate going to bed. You know, I, I just want to keep reading. But this one has you know very quick finality. So I I know you, you might have mentioned. Is it on Kindle? It's on Kindle. It's on yep. Kindle too. Yep. And with the, with the pictures involved in it too, or we didn't check it out. Uh, I'm not sure if the pictures are on I don't know. Do they have that? If they have that capability, They I'm definitely sure. do, of course. Then yes, it, yes. It probably is. Very nice. I want to ask you one John Gotti question. Yeah, yes, me too. So I, I'll ask you three now. Yeah. I actually don't have any memorabilia. I don't collect memorabilia. Yeah. Um, the only thing I have in my house is I have two seats from Yankee Stadium, the old right, Yankee Stadium. Right, right. My father and I had uh, season tickets for like 11 years. Right, right. And when, uh, when, the seat, when they took down the stadium, I, I bought the seats. Best investment <laughs> of my life. My girlfriend hates them because they're, they're like prominently displayed in my house. So when I started doing this podcast maybe like four years ago, I had on a few people. I'm like, hey, I'm like, like Kenny Anderson, the basketball player. Right. I'm like, can you send me a jersey? Yeah, of course. Felipe Lopez. All these guys, whoever came on my show, no matter what they did, I got memorabilia from them. And I would have to buy some stuff, but I, I always wanted to be different. Um, I was with Opie. He had Mike Tyson on. So I had him sign like Mike Tyson's punch out. Or if a guy has like an action figure because – you know, I want, I want right. something different. Everyone can have a piece of paper signed, and I would never go to a store and buy an, an A-Rod jersey just because I want him to be there. I want it to be something personal. So I have all these, like, action figures from wrestlers and every book signed. Did you ever ask for anything from Gotti? Nah. No. It was like, you know. But looking now, would you want something? Nah, you know, really? I mean, I had this theory that, like, because when he got acquitted in 87, I had this theory. I got, like, a really a legitimate, down-to-earth, world-class exclusive that there was like 200 people that wanted to interview this guy, and I had him to myself for about five minutes. Why is that? Because I knew where he was going to be processed in the building. Oh. And I went to the area where the U.S. Marshals are, and I knew he had to pass through that area. So, you know, I had him, and it was like, you know, a moment in time. It was like, it lasted maybe like, if it lasted five minutes, it was a long time. But um, I asked him, you know, how you doing, blah, 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 and this and that. And, that, you know, the memory of that thing is, is enough to sustain me. And I always thought that 20 years afterwards, mm-hmm. I would call him up and say, it's 20 years since I bothered you, but he had cancer and he died, and you know, I never really you know, romanticized it that much. I mean, to me, I mean, the, the guy, as charming as he was, you could never lose 
uh, track of the fact that the guy was mm -hmm. a, uh, uh, a real, um, you know, uh, blot, you know what I mean, on humanity. I mean, the guy caused a lot of pain and a lot of aggravation. He killed people willy-nilly, and he's not somebody that you really should, anybody should emulate or look uh, up to. You know, all that stuff about the uh, Howard Beach fireworks and about how he kept the city safe. Mm -hmm. He kept that revisionist bullshit, you know? I, I love hearing it now when someone's like, this would never happen, yeah. happen if Gotti was yeah, here. Yeah, well, so other things would happen. There. No worse. memorabilia? How about you, Detective? Any memorabilia from the job that you've ever kept? Nothing? Uh, I can't. I, I mean, I have plenty of memorabilia. Just... Um, you know these challenge coins that have been given to me sure, over the sure. years. So I have, I have a whole collection of them. Oh, from, you collect them? From I don't really collect them. I, I there was actually a guy I was giving them to who collected them, but then I said, you know, I, I'm getting so many of these things. You know, from different working for the sergeants union. You know, I, I meet um, mm -hmm. people from agencies all over the country, uh, Los Angeles, Chicago, Seattle. So they always come with these gifts. So we go there and they give out these gifts. So I started saving them, and um, I have a mountain of them. You know, you Are they displayed anywhere? No, they're they're just in a mountain in a box. <laughs> <laughs> and Lieutenant, we were talking about memorabilia from your, the job or the history. Anything you have that's like yes, I, I collect uh, the radio cars, the diecast radio cars. I have probably a hundred different ones. Uh, I particularly like the cars that I drove, <laughs> like a, which is a very hard one to get, like a Dodge <laughs> Diplomat from '87. If you were the sergeant, you got the brand new car. It was clean. Uh, the the uh, 78 Plymouth Fury with uh, two lights on top, things like that. I, 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 and I appreciate the old cars too. And even uh, there's a, a technology with the cars, you know, why they became certain colors and, uh, you know, this installation of the early radios. I don't really talk about it here, but in the other book, radios were one way communication. It was broadcast to headquarters, and you had to listen on the the radio for your car number to be called and they sent you to a job and after the job was complete you called headquarters to tell them hey I just did that job and they kept track of your car on a big map of New York City with discs <laughs> with the number and they would flip it you know it was white if you were available and black and if they made that transmission they would switch it to black and wait for you to call back to switch it back to white I have friends that are police officers do you know now and I'm sure you know you're still active lieutenant do you know now when the cars turned on you can follow that, and if they make a right-hand turn on 33rd Street, you know the car, you can tell exactly what block they're on. Yes. And if the car's turned off, you, and if the car's running and it's kept in a location. If you were to go to the uh, Jock Joint Operations Center, you'll see a big <laughs> map with all the cars, and they could see them all going all over the city, where everyone is. And they could <laughs> press the button and tell who the driver and the recorder are. Would that destroy, Detective You too? would that destroy what you guys did back in the day? No. <laughs> Make it do different. It would definitely would have made uh, things would have been revamped a little bit. Yeah. That would have been. <laughs> Nobody would have been a reporter back yeah. then. I'll tell you that. Because one of the uh, joys of being a reporter is not having to answer to too many people. Of you know? course not. Just just in the time that uh, Lieutenant Whalen and my, and myself have been on the job since the early '80s, the changes have just been unbelievable, astronomical. You know, it's, if you tell young people what the job was like, you know, you always hear about the job used to be this way. I'm not saying it was necessarily better. I'm just saying it, it's so different, and it's the way people socialized, the, you know, what people did at their lunch right. hours, you know. Um, um. You, you know what destroyed a, a bunch of cops I spoke to said, you know what destroyed it? The camera phone. Because, you know, you were a cop, you can walk into, you know, just wherever you went for right. a second. Now it's six clicks. Yeah. The cop, yeah, yeah, yeah so sure. the well, camera phone. It started phone. with the pager, you know. The, the beeper. The yeah, the beeper, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm going to give my plug for the book. Yeah. And, like, I love having authors on. 
and you guys will be on fascinating. You talked about the book, but I want to talk about you guys because so many authors that come on, you just talk about the book, book, and then leave. And I think you guys all have fascinating careers, still active, amazing post reporter, detective. So case files in the NYPD, more than 175 years of solved and unsolved crimes. Buy it. You should have a, a thing on the website where if they put the name Mike in, they know how many people buy it from listening to the show. <laughs> That's what we should do, and then I get. Yeah. <laughs> well, we might do that. <laughs> Listen, that's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. For Appreciate it. We finally did it. It took forever, but we yeah, finally but got it done. You're a busy guy. I wish. I wish. No, you are.